Hospitality Meets is brought to you by Rotacloud, the staff scheduling app for hospitality teams. Rotacloud lets you create and share rotas, record attendance, and manage your team's annual leave, all in less time than it takes to make a brew. It can also make life easier for your staff, allowing them to check their rotas, request holiday, and even pick up extra shifts, all through the Rotacloud mobile app. Start your 30-day free trial today by visiting rotacloud.com forward slash fill and find out how much easier managing your team can be. Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Hamish Anderson, CEO of Tate Enterprises and wine connoisseur extraordinaire. Coming up on today's show, Hamish has a deep reflection. God. Yeah. Phil gets educated. There we are. Every day's a school day. And Hamish reveals some of the things you have to do when delivering world-class events. He's scrabbling around southeast London trying to find a bottle of Tupone. All that and so much more as Hamish chats us through his epic journey so far, which sees him now at the helm of one of the most recognisable brands in the whole of the UK landscape. It's a wonderful insight into yet another journey hospitality can take you on. As always, please don't forget to give us a like and a share. Enjoy. And a huge hospitality meets welcome to Hamish Anderson. Hello, Hamish. Hello. Very pl- absolute pleasure to be here. Good, good, good. How are you today on this wonderful Monday morning? I'm very well, actually. Um, sort of, you know, feel, it feels like springs in the air over the last weekend. The sun's out. Um, and it's it's all, all very good at the moment. We've got a couple of great shows just launched here at Tate. So, it's, you know, I, I quite like this time of year. It sort of feels like things are positive and moving forward. Not that not that January is not positive, but it's always a tough month for, for hospitality in, in general. January. Yeah. Is it the same for you guys then? I mean, does your footfall, general footfall through the, the venue decrease through that period? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we're luckier than some in the sense that we are, a lot of our footfall is obviously tied to how many people are coming into the galleries. So it's quite dependent on what type of shows we have on. Um, and traditionally, you know, as many of our shows kind of finish that first or second weekend of January. So you you get a nice sort of bounce that last, uh, that those last couple of weekends. And actually there's a funny phenomenon in, in, in the sense that I always think, I don't actually have any real evidence for this, but I always think we get a lot busier at the weekends in January because people people sort of, you know, they've, they've been out and about spending lots of money all Christmas and, and, and December and then everyone wants to do something worthwhile. And so they come to a museum in January. Right. Get that culture in, <laughs> yeah, exactly. in them. Absolutely. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're not quite as down in some areas, but certainly things like our events business, which is quite a key bit of what we're doing. People are not doing many corporate events in uh, January. So certainly quite right. a part-time. Yeah. Got you. Okay, so I just tell the world the the role that you have there. Yeah, so sure. So I I run a business called uh, Tate Enterprises Limited, uh, which is essentially most of the commercial income that Tate uh, generates. Um, my background, hence our conversation, is is hospitality, um, food and drink. That's about half our business. So we run all the cafes and restaurants. Um, we've had all the sort of food and beverage outlets within the four Tate galleries. Uh, so the two in London and then. Um, People always forget that we have two outside London as well, so Liverpool. Well, actually, it's funny. Tate is is defined by Tate Modern in many people's eyes, and actually, Tate Modern is the youngest of the four galleries. Is that uh, right? There yeah, you are. every day's a school day. There you go. So, um, yeah. Um, and then we have various other elements, the main other elements of our business. So within the F&B side of things, there's the physical F&B spaces, and then we run all the events that are at Tate, uh, so the kind of venue hire element of that. And then we have a separate team uh, that delivers the events, uh, food and drink as well. And then we run the on-site shop, so all the retail, e-commerce, 
Uh, we have a publishing arm, so we publish all the catalogues that, that you'll see in the Tate shops, and then also a range of other publications, children's books, art books. We, what else do we do? Uh, we have a kind of merchandising division that creates all the products, a lot of the uh, specific product might be tied to either exhibitions or, or just the kind of product that we're selling the whole time, you know, Tate tote, bag, Tate tote bags, that type of thing. Uh, we have a uh, licensing business, so image licensing and product licensing. And then the last thing we do is we have a coffee roasting business as well. So at Tate Britain, we have a coffee, we, we roast our own coffee. I think right. I've encompassed everything. <laughs> By God. So, yeah, I mean, do you know, I, I, I'm not sure I'd fully contemplated what enterprises might actually yeah. cover. But, I mean, God, you've got a lot of enterprise going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we... that. that that kind of portfolio is fairly normal for a kind of a large cultural institution like Tate. The bit that's really unusual is, is the food and drink side of things. Um, as you'll know, most major uh, institutions uh, contract out their catering uh, and Tate has always taken the decision to do that itself. Whereas the other side of things, the publishing and the e-commerce, not, not everyone does it the same way, but that, that kind of model is, is fairly normal uh, within within the broader kind of institutions that you would compare with to Tate to. Right. Got you. Okay. So, well, I mean, obviously it was a bit of a journey. You didn't wake up one morning and you were doing this job. Um, so <laughs> yeah. take us all the way back to, to the beginning of your career. How did you get into hospitality in the first place? Well, I'd almost, I'd almost take that back to, to before I actually started working in hospitality. I went to, my family went to live abroad when I was uh, kind of my early teens. And before that, we were able to describe ourselves as a very I don't, know, I don't know, normal British family where, where food wasn't probably central to to our being and what we did. But then my parents went to live, um, my father got a job uh, in Hong Kong and we went out to live in Hong Kong. Uh, and that really kind of changed my outlook and I think my, my family's outlook on, on food. Suddenly, it's a much more kind of sort of Mediterranean lifestyle out there. You're eating out a lot. And I was, I was exposed at quite a young age until I was up to about 14 to just just going out to restaurants and, and, and food in particular and cooking and we suddenly as a whole family very much kind of food became a very sort of central part of our lives and then we came back to live uh, in the UK you know not that we always went out to fancy restaurants a lot but just sort of cooking and discussing food and buying food and all that became quite sort of central to to our lives. I went off to university did a history degree left naturally actually finished that was like what on earth am I going to do and I, I was very lucky I started working um just because really at the time I needed some money although I was clearly interested in food but hadn't really thought about it as a career started working at the Bendham restaurant uh, one of the original Conran restaurants and, and was there luckily when uh, chef Simon Hopkinson was there who was who was who was you know fantastic chef making some amazing food at the time and then we got very into the wine side of things when I was there did my WSET courses and then sort of after about two to three years of doing that I actually realized I really enjoyed it and, and you know actually took it a bit more seriously and, and made a career out of it so I was a bit bend for about three three and a half years had a brief stint at Majestic Wine realized that working uh, in retail was not for me that didn't last very long yeah. uh and then was lucky to get introduced to someone who was doing some consultancy work for uh, Tate at the time. And it was a very formative time for that Tate Enterprises business. Uh, Tate knew that Tate Modern was about to open. This was 2000. Um, and they were really just looking what to do with their whole kind of food and beverage and, and indeed enterprise business because they knew the whole thing was going to massively scale up. And I was lucky enough to get introduced to someone who was giving them some advice. And then it kind of went from there, really. So I took over running the, the wine cellar at the Rex Whistler restaurant, um, which was the restaurant of Tate Britain, which always had quite a sort of famous reputation for wine. And then just was very lucky to kind of go on from there. And so I've worked at Tate on and off ever since, really. Parts of my career, I've only worked at Tate three or four days a week and done some other things, but then had the opportunity 
when the redevelopment of Tate Modern happened in uh, 2015, the extension of the Blavatnik building there, I got much more involved in the business development side of things. And then three years ago, took over running just one side of the business, which uh, we call Tate Eats, which is the, the F&B and the events side of it. Uh, and then we changed the company structures um, late last, uh, sorry, early uh, 2023, so almost a year ago, and then took over as CEO running, running the whole uh, enterprises business. So uh, it's been a great journey. Not half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what year was it that you actually joined, Tate? 1997. I was looking at, I, I, I have, um, I mean, you know, I don't know if you have it, on your computer screen, you get, you know, your, your abbreviation of your name, which is uh, H.A. Hamish Anderson, and I'm 01. So, you know, I think I'm also, I, I remember working here when we didn't have a computer. So. <laughs> right, God. God, you know, it, well, I suppose actually, I mean, I, I was a, I was a 1999 graduate from uni and only in yeah. our third year did we start doing anything that resembled kind of emailing and and stuff yeah. like that it was um yeah it's a very different time kids if you're uh, if you're listening yeah. i was absolutely i was joking with um with sarah who's um someone i'm working with closely at the moment who's sort of taking over and, and doing a lot of the wine stuff and doing a really great job at tate modern and kind of guiding what we do with wine there and uh she was doing stock counting the other day with this, uh, you know, a scanner, you know, so just going along the scanning. It took like sort of, you know, an hour and a half or something to count this. And I, was, I remember just telling her what I used to, when I first started doing it, I had to do it all on hand and then actually flip cards. So you had to enter all the stock on flip cards. <laughs> she, yeah. she thought I was completely mad. <laughs> yeah, holding a, a bottle up to the light going, I think that's about three quarters. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, God, yeah, different times. But um yeah. So was it just taking you back a little bit? It, it was Bibendum then the the place where maybe it was a kind of yeah I think this is what I want to do. But Bibendum yeah. was the place that really cemented that yeah I'm finding my home now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I said, I started off there as a as you know as a, you know as that traditional kind of hierarchy. It was a commie waiter, so you know you weren't you weren't you were carrying the plates to the, the table, and and then. Uh, you weren't actually really allowed to sort of interact with the customers, but they had a great, you know, there was a great group of people there, some really interesting people cooking in the kitchen and, and front of house as well. There was a wine writer who's become a friend, Matthew Dukes, who was who was doing all the wine at the time there at Bendham. So we used to have this, you know, great setup where, you know, I sort of got quite involved in the wine even before I became a sommelier there. Um, it was just a really great background and training with this really interesting group of people, many of whom had gone on to work in lots of really different interesting parts um, the industry but it was you know it wasn't a sort of light bulb moment but yes it really it, it sort of slowly dawned on me that this you know one I could make a career out of it because you know as you know it was, it was a much less structured industry then uh, I think we're getting much better as an industry now in providing that structure and that kind of framework to give so that when younger people come into the industry they can see a pathway through yeah. but you know then it was it was it was you know I mean to if I'm honest people you know, people are like, oh, you're working in a restaurant. And it was like, and there weren't many people who I was working with who had actively decided they were a little bit, many of them a little bit like me, who sort, of, who sort of decided that, they, you know, they'd ended up working there and then, and that's where they'd ended up being. So, yeah, it was definitely it was definitely very much that, you know, it was great food, interesting wine, interesting people. And it was a lot of fun, a lot of camaraderie. I mean, you know, it was hard work. You know, we were open late in the evenings. But, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that went on from there. Yeah, I, I mean, I know we talk a lot about, or well, maybe we don't talk a lot about this, but the world talks a lot about the fact that the, you know, this industry is long hours and yep. la la la. But I'd, I've always been a great advocate that actually long hours in themselves are not a problem, as no, no. long as you've got a, a great place to work and that you care about the work that you do, because then it doesn't really feel like it's you know work. No, no, I, I, absolutely, and I think that. 
you know that great place to work and then that close-knit team that you have it's 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 a lot of fun and yes i mean the hour the hours are the hours but it, it, i think from people from the outside think it's a lot worse you know they think it's yeah. a lot worse than it is and it's not we shouldn't use words like worse it's just different it's just a different way of working yeah. to how many other people work um but equally hugely rewarding yeah without question and i think equally um you know pretty much any any industry that is at the top of its game is going to put put yes. the errors in to make it absolutely. happen yeah absolutely absolutely i couldn't agree more i mean we're lucky within our business now and it's actually i find it quite um you know, it's been an interesting few years. I mean, I'm sure you've talked about it uh, on this program, but, you know, the problems we've had as an industry in terms of recruitment um, over the last few years, and we've always been, because primarily we are a, are a daytime business. I mean, we do obviously operate uh, in the evening. We have lots of events in the evening. Historically, uh, Tate Modern was open Friday and Saturday night, sadly not yet post-COVID, but we, we hope to change that soon. But actually, I find it really interesting the last sort of, certainly the last 18 months, looking at the type of people we're now recruiting, because there are people who... You know, we're able to offer slightly less evenings, but and so we just—it's I don't know. I suppose we're getting a different type of person coming to work for us now, perhaps than we were sort of four or five years ago. Someone, people who want to stay in the industry, um, but certainly want to have or, or, or perceive to have a slightly better work-life balance. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think the uh, I think that's a I'm good step, sure. a good step forward. It's um, part of the evolution of of anything, I suppose, is that you have to evolve to what's going on around you, right? We can't spend our lives as a as an industry asking everybody to mold themselves to us no, no. you know we've got to mold ourselves to the workforce no absolutely i'd agree um no I'd to agree. a certain extent to a certain extent there's got, got to be a little bit a balance. Balance. yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely so uh from let's take you back to the beginning of your your life at tate in 1997 yeah, yeah. so you, what was your your first job just remind us so I was the um, so there's a restaurant um, which is again not open now um, post COVID. It's a restaurant called the Rex Whistler uh, restaurant. So it was the main restaurant at Tate Britain, which had actually been a restaurant. Uh, it started, started off life as a tea room actually, and then became a restaurant in the 60s. Um, and right from the 60s onwards, always had this incredible collection of wine because um, they used to buy wine on Primera and cellar it. Um, so I was really lucky. I took over running this ridiculously amazing wine cellar in my kind of mid 20s. But one of my first jobs actually was to try and try and get rid of the wine because it was just one of these classic, quite sort of old school, institutionalized places that just been kind of buying wine for years and years and years and had far too much wine. They were buying wine on the basis of when people still used to drink a bottle and a half of wine at lunchtime. Right. <laughs> and I hadn't quite worked out that people weren't actually doing that anymore. <laughs> so yeah, I was I took over actually initially just on a six month contract to to help kind of you know get the seller in a, in a in a bit of better order and, and redo the wine list and do some staff training. Um, so I was the sommelier there for. I think four years. And then I took on a slightly, well, I took on a, a much broader role when Tate Modern opened uh, in 2000. So at that point, I started looking after purchasing and running anything you drank within the business, including tea and coffee, which still is around 45% of our turnover in terms of the in terms of the uh, eats business. And so then I was still working on the floor then, but still had, but had this kind of sort of broader, interesting buying role. And then I was also extraordinarily lucky, lucky at that time. One, some of our best customers in the Rex Whistler restaurant were all the team from Random House Publishing, which is says a Penguin and various different other Century and various other publishing houses there. And then I got to know one of the editors there. And one of those sort of great chances that you have in your life, I ended up writing a book about wine. And, oh, wow. And that was published in 2003. And that gave me lots of other opportunities. So I then started doing some consulting outside of Tate. And that's when I essentially dropped my time down working at Tate. So I worked at Tate three days a week. 
Um, ended up writing for the Telegraph for a number of years about wine and, and a few other kind of um, sort of uh, publications, but but also got into consulting. So so worked for other restaurant groups, pubs, and pe- people uh, putting together wine lists, doing training and stuff like that. So I had this really interesting time when I was doing kind of three days a week for the Tate, looking after all their drink side of stuff, and then and then two days for myself essentially. Yeah, and and yeah, I enjoyed that, but I, I think. You've, you've definitely got to be a certain type of person to be completely reinventing yourself the whole time as a sort of consultant and going out there. So you, you end up working on a lot of sort of kind of launches and projects, but but don't actually have the sort of longevity, which I actually quite enjoyed. So um, it's kind of like you, you get your head into something and then, and then it's like, uh, I've done my bit, off you go. Off you go, yeah. You don't get to see the, the benefit of all of the work that you've put in. Yes, I mean, it's, yes, there's a bit of that. Yeah, and yes, and you don't get that. Yeah, exactly. You don't get that kind of follow up and that. I, I enjoy going back and just kind of making sure something's working and, and following it through and finishing it. Um, and you say so you, yeah, so you're just ending up. I felt a little bit like I was also treadmill of constantly new projects the whole time. Um, but it was it was fun. It was it was a, it was a great balance to have like the kind of three days of tape and then and then two days doing other stuff. But then I was really lucky when, as I said, the the, the new extension of, of Tate Modern opened, and I was able to kind of move into a more kind of business development role there and kind of look at the new restaurant we were going to put in there. Indeed, the other F and B spaces, a new members room, with um, another little cafe on the top floor there, and just kind of work with with the rest of the senior team in terms of you know what. The look and feel and, and how those spaces were going to work and that really kind of took me to i suppose the next level within the business and then enabled me to kind of take over running it a few years later yeah i mean it, it's not i mean not bad for somebody who like just took a mild interest in wine at one point yes. and developed yeah. from there but um yeah the book let's talk about the book because i don't yeah. often get people within hospitality who have written a book about something they love how yeah. did that how did that come about where did the spark I mean, obviously, the, the spark was wine, probably, but where did that all come from? The spark was wine, and you know, I'd always had an interest in journalism. So, I, as I said, I studied a history degree, so I quite enjoy. You know, one of the things that got me into wine, I mean, obviously, the, the, the taste of it, but I, I really enjoy the, the kind of history and the social history side of wine, and, and the kind of how wine, and particularly places that wine have have you know has been made, you know, speaks to much more than just wine or grapes or geography it's the it's the local people and and you know i used to love reading when i was working at the bendham we used to the sommeliers used to have you know down in the cellar all the, the bookcase with all the all the kind of wine books on it and that's obviously again pre the days of when the internet was really you could just get any information you like from the internet so if you wanted to learn you had to have you know whoever's book uh on, on burgundy but um i used to love reading michael broadbent's books which were always you know he, he tasted these you know extraordinary wines from the times of the russian czars and things like that so that whole kind of side of, of the sort of i don't know history and reading about about wine um really interested me and then one of the things i had been thinking of doing before i ended up staying in hospitality industry was to do a journalism course um which i never ended up doing so i'd always had an interest in writing and i, I suppose it was at that time, 2003, when there was this whole kind of, you know, everyone was looking for the new young person to talk about wine and not saying that I ended up being that, but there was a real, you know, wine was just burgeoning everywhere. You know, there was all these interesting wine producing regions and there was a real desire from the media's perspective to find a sort of, you know, a younger generation to connect and talk about wine. So I was just really lucky, along with a few other people as well, like Matt Walls and things like that, to be sort of plucked from obscurity and given that opportunity to do that. So I wrote a, a yeah, an introduction to wine called Vino, which was um, great fun to do. Yeah, and that would be, I would guess that then, sort of based what you've just been saying there around the fact that there's this desire to have a kind of younger voice 
involved yep. in this world would have been around about the time I guess that that Jamie Oliver was starting to make yes. his name in in the younger voice for cooking. So uh, uh, absolutely, yeah. I was very lucky because his um one of the editors who worked on the books worked on his books, so he very kindly gave me gave me a quote for my book. <laughs> so, oh, really? So, and Jamie Oliver's Jamie Oliver's quote saying he quite liked the book on the front, which was which was very nice and very helpful actually. Got it into right. a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he didn't really go on to do much, did he? After no, no, exactly. <laughs> But it was actually his, his his wine guy was a guy called Matt Walls who worked with him on Fifteen and stuff. Uh, also wrote a book about the same time as me. Uh, right. He was an Aussie guy, uh, really nice guy as well. Uh, so we were, yeah, we were really lucky because then it kind of again, obviously it opened up other other work and financial opportunities for me. But also he enabled you know I did a lot of travelling around that time, went to lots of wine regions. It was it was super exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a do you have a favourite go to region that you still still is your um, best of them? I suppose. The regions, uh, so Italy, both Tuscany and, and Northern Italy, Piemonte, Burgundy, but I can't really afford to drink all the Burgundy that I, yeah. that I used to be able to afford to drink now. Uh, Even the entry-level Burgundies are not exactly entry-level these days. No, no, there's not much, nothing entry-level about Burgundy nowadays. Um, and Australia as well, those are the kind of regions I probably, you know, it's, it, you can't specialise in every area because it's such an enormous world, the wine world, mm. and, and getting bigger as each, you know, as, as sort of, you know, regions that were probably slightly more obscure and now becoming more famous. So it's, it's almost a bigger world than when I started in it. So, but yeah, those, those are the three or four regions that I was kind of best known for. Yeah, impossible to uh, keep up with it, really, as well, because yeah. there's also, I mean, within the new world, there's the new, new world uh, yeah. coming through now. I mean, I had some fantastic wine from Georgia um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just last year. Yeah. And the history around their wine, I didn't realise um, they're one of the oldest winemaking well, yeah. countries in the world. Extraordinary, yeah. And, the, and the, a lot of the kind of, some of those extraordinary wineries, which which are still run by the Orthodox Church, and and yeah, making wine in a, in a way that's you know it's hardly changed for, for centuries. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm not going to turn this into the wine cast. Although, <laughs> we'll do that next time. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe <laughs> a little angle there. Five star hospitality means having the right people in the right place at the right time, and that's exactly where RotorCloud can help. RotorCloud is the online platform that makes planning rotors, recording attendance, and managing annual leave easy. Its simple drag-and-drop interface lets you create and share rotors with your team in minutes, while our built-in budgeting tools mean you'll know exactly how much you're spending on staffing before sending the rotor out. RotorCloud also makes life easier for your staff, allowing them to check their rotors, request time off, and pick up extra shifts, all through the RotorCloud mobile app. Start your 30-day free trial today by visiting rotacloud.com forward slash fill and find out how much easier managing your team can be. So back to Tate. Yeah. Um, advancing through the, the ranks, Yeah. I suppose at what point did it start to become clear to you that, you know, again, you've found your home, really, because you've yeah. been there for a very long time, and that you could continue to... I suppose, as we alluded to earlier on, you could you can see a path actually yep. that could take you somewhere. Well, I think you know, I think there's a bit, particularly as you as you move up through the ranks, whether it's a manager or general manager, or not, very lucky now as 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 the CEO. I mean, you know, I suppose part of it's that confidence things and fit and feeling that you you a you have the ability to do that and b lead a team of people, um, which gets obviously as you move up through the ranks uh, increasingly bigger. But I've been I've been extremely lucky at Tate because. We've grown incrementally as a business over the years. I mean, obviously, we've had these big step changes when something like Tate Modern opened. You know, suddenly we went from being that to sort of almost turning over three times the amount uh, right. within within the space of a year. But post that, we've had these kind of you know 
small incremental gains, which has just enabled us to kind of grow steadily rather, rather I think, than having to take these massive jumps. And so that, I think that's really helped me as well, because it's enabled me to just sort of, you know, as our business has gradually got busier, my role has gradually evolved within the business. Um, and I think that's really helped me as a, as a, as a leader and a manager to sort of slowly adapt and change as I've, as I've gone along. I haven't had to kind of had to massively change my team structure. We've just kind of, again, organically grown uh, with the size of the business, which I think has been really beneficial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things I loved about on your, your notes that you've very kindly filled out uh, ahead <laughs> of time was, and I think you and I are very similar characters, actually, when it comes to this, is uh, you talked about procrastination. Yes. Uh, but that's, actually, procrastination is a byproduct of uh, of thinkers, I think. Yeah. Um, and um, do you think then now being at the kind of the helm of such a wonderfully, actually quite a diverse business, really, in terms of what you've got to get your head into. Yeah. Do you think that suits that uh, that that thinking type of person position? That's an interesting question. I I, I think I, you know right. I think I think you're probably right. I think it probably does. I think I particularly, particularly over the last years, as I've taken on this new role, which is essentially just in sort of blunt terms in terms of the income that I now look after double double the size of what I, what I was doing previously but having lots of different types of businesses it, it, it you do need to think all about them all in a slightly different way and you need time to mm. think about them you know there are some similarities with with how a publishing house runs to actually how a restaurant runs um, you know the nuts and bolts of it of a PL are reasonably similar but of course the rest of what they're doing is completely different so I think it's really important that you do have time to think about how your business is running uh, and make considered decisions. You just need to make sure you make decisions and don't procrastinate too much. Well, yeah. There is that small detail, small detail. <laughs> but, yeah, but then I suppose that's why, you know, the, the, I think that type of personality, I think, lends itself to a role where you've got to have, wear lots of different hats because you can give a considered opinion on stuff. Yes. And then you get the, the people who really know what they're doing to go and act out the ideas, basically. No, absolutely. And I think that I find it interesting in the role that I'm in now. And it, it, I think in some sense that's made me probably even a, hopefully a slightly better leader of actually our food and drink business, because that's the area where I have deep knowledge and, and I hope expertise. And so, you know, I always have to stop myself of, uh, <laughs> as I say, interfering with what, what they're doing, because you know that's the area of the business I know really well. And actually, I find it really, it's quite liberating. Uh, taking over a business that you don't know very much about in terms of you're not I'm not an expert in, in publishing or I'm not an expert in creating product for our shops but I think I can you know I think that those teams that I'm now working with I can bring things from what I've learned from my time in hospitality and bring it to their businesses and look at it from a slightly different perspective without even getting involved in, in trying to tell them how to design something or what to publish because that's their roles to get on with that and that's kind of helped me let you know I think actually just let the people who are good at running our restaurants and, and, and designing our menus just get on with it and do it and just just let me sit a bit more in the background. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose that's a good lesson for leadership anywhere, isn't it, really, is yeah. that, you know, you, you don't, you're not the best at everything in, in uh, the business. Uh, so let the people who are flourish. Yeah, we had a, we had a great, um, so our, our kind of setup, although we're, uh, so we're a business called Tate Enterprise Limited, if you work for the Tate, uh, you're essentially working for the government, so we were a separate business which has itself its own its own board, uh, and the chair of our board until quite recently was uh, James Timpson, as in the from the Timpson who runs the Timpson oh, shoe wow. shops. Really, really, really interesting, really, really interesting uh, business, and uh, really great help to us uh, when he was on our board. Anyway, he I always remember again when I took over running the whole thing, he gave me a really great piece of advice, which is you know as a leader you basically just need to you know you need to concentrate on the top stuff and concentrate on the bottom stuff. I.e., you need to be on the ground; people need to see you and 
go and have a cup of tea in your in your cafes and make sure that that's all working and everything in the middle you just ignore and let everyone else go on with and I, and I, I didn't quite say it in those terms but that was the implication and I, I just find it a very useful thing you know you just need to let people get on with it yeah which can be it's, it's a tricky step to take sometimes especially if you Absolutely. care about something deeply uh, to, to to step away from it a little bit yeah. is uh, yeah it can be a tricky yeah. one no, absolutely. It, you, you're quite right, and particularly when it's, it's it's very easy to do when things are going well, but it's much harder to do. It's much obviously there are times as a business leader when you need to get involved. If things are not going well, you need to act, and you need to and you need to get involved in the nitty gritty of it again. But again, it's it's it is it, you know longer term, it is much easier and it is much better to let people within those senior positions work out their own problems and solve them rather than jump in and do it for them. I mean, yeah. you know. There are times when you have to do that, but again, it's just, just yeah, as you say, letting go sometimes is a good thing. Yeah, easier said than done sometimes as well. But um, do you think your time, however short it was, in Majestic is now helping you with your retail head? No, nope. <laughs> I, I didn't like it at all. Um, no, I was there for for maybe five months. I, I just spent the whole time. I was the van driver basically, so you should drive around and deliver deliver wine to everyone. Right. Um, Although I think, you know, from a retail perspective, actually, there are many, that's a bit of the business that, that actually is, is, is very, very transferable to what you're doing from a in a hospitality sense. You know, customer service is hugely important. Uh, look and feel is hugely important. And again, the nuts and bolts of how the, of how the P&L work are, again, really quite similar in the sense that labor is one of your, one of your main drivers and costs within the shop as it, as it is in the restaurant. You know, you're looking to make a, a margin very similarly as, as we are on food and drinks. So I actually feel that's something that I found reasonably easy to do. Uh, whereas, you know, other elements like publishing is a, is a whole new world and a fascinating world, but very different. You know, mm. you're doing it there again from a, from a shop and F&B perspective. You're, I don't know, you're buying something and then you're selling it a week or two later if it's a bottle of wine or food that, that day so it's a quite a simple proposition whereas you know publishing you're, you're creating and commissioning a book that, that won't won't see the light of day and won't, and won't get you any revenue for three years uh right. so it, it's it's a really different thing yeah i mean it, it I, I suppose because from the outside looking in i always just have this uh i suppose idea in my head that you know you're a you're a, a big company i have no idea what you turn over from a revenue perspective but in terms yeah. of you have all of these different venues as well as the different revenue streams yeah but it's it seems like i mean happy being the ceo of tate enterprises sounds like correct me if i'm wrong but you're it's actually quite an entrepreneurial role because you can utilize that word enterprises in kind of pretty much any form that you wish it to take absolutely our, our, our you know i mean um, we're here to support tate's Tate's mission in, and its values in what it does, but also one of the main reasons of our company's existence is to support Tate through financial contribution, and therefore we are we are given a free reign to be able to go out and do things that are, you know, within reason profitable for Tate. I mean, our business is interesting because you know we are um, about 65 percent of our turnover is driven by visitor numbers, so we're incredibly that bit of that income is incredibly tied to how many people are coming to the galleries. Of course, you can do you can do better with the people that come in and improve how much money they're going to spend and whatever. But fundamentally, you know, there isn't a huge, huge amount you can change there. And so we're in a weird position sometimes where it takes, you know, most businesses, food and drink businesses or shops are always looking to be growing. You know, if Tate has a 10% drop in visitor numbers for the year, then that generally means that that, that area of the business is dropping by 10%. So the entrepreneurial side is actually that other 35%. It's like, how can we always look to kind of de-risk the visitor number of it and actually have these other income streams that are not, solely reliant on what's happening 
uh, within Tate, which is things like, again, historically, our publishing business was very focused on publishing catalogues for exhibitions. That's what it grew out of. But actually, we now have a whole arm of, of publishing children's books and other books, which, again, not reliant on, on the exhibitions that we have on their other things. The coffee roasting business is a great example. I mean, that, again, we used to have a great guy who did all the training for our coffee. We came from Illy Coffee actually years ago, and he just came to me and said, you know, I think, you know, we're selling X amount of coffee. I think I could buy a coffee roaster and buy green coffee, and the difference is X, and we can make some more money out of it. And so now we have this this fun business. It makes a huge amount of money, but it makes, it makes a nice contribution each year, selling, producing all the coffee that we need to sell within our spaces, but then a wholesale business and actually a contract roasting business where we, we roast coffee for other small uh businesses and cafes and put together blends and stuff for them so yeah it's a it's a you know we have the license to do things like that which is great yeah no no it sounds like it sounds uh, like a, never a dull moment no <laughs> there was also something else on your your notes and this this comes goes back and i don't know if i'm going to trigger you here by bringing this up but um <laughs> it was an event um uh, for the pre-opening and uh you had a problem sourcing a certain bottle of something yeah, so when we opened, when we opened uh, Tate Modern, uh, the Queen came and opened it. I can't, I can't remember whether it was actually the day Tate Modern opened or the, the before or after. Anyway, part of the Queen's visit is, 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 is a whole, obviously, load of her entourage arrives and then talk to us and our staff about A, how to behave when the Queen comes, and, and, and B, part of it was, well, this is what she likes to drink, because there was clearly going to be a, a toast of, um, you know, champagne or something when, when this big moment happened. And... Uh, and part of the request was there was obviously champagne. There was there was I can't remember what the other drink. Anyway, it was Dubonnet, and this was like you know two thousand. This was and like Dubonnet is quite quite in fashion now, but it wasn't in fashion then. Right. <laughs> and there was uh, and also that was the uh, Southwark, you know, round Tate Modern then. That was before kind of Borough Market and everything had taken off. So there were there were no kind of like sort of hipster drink shops that you could go and find Dubonnet in. So we were desperately <laughs> scrabbling around southeast London trying to find a bottle of Dubonnet. <laughs> My God, see, I'd see different time again. Different the people these days, they just don't know how lucky they are. Yeah, I can't remember where we got someone. I think someone found it in a restaurant in the end. I think it could have even been half a bottle. It probably would have been sitting open for about for about sort of two years. So I don't know whether she actually drank it or not in the end. <laughs> right. Well, well, I suppose she has a selection, doesn't she? Of uh, or just had? Sorry. Um, had a, the, yeah, exactly that. So you had to go with a tray of a certain glass of champagne. I think it was de Bonnet and soda, and, and there was one other drink. But yes, yeah, so it was always you had to go with the selection, and then she made her choice. Yeah, God, it's not bad, eh? You know you've made it if you've if people are presenting a selection of drinks, your favourite drinks. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, any other uh, funny stories from your your career so far? God, it's, yeah. It's, it's, well, what other ones? I think our events have always, you know, we put on some some of them. Yeah, you might have to edit some of them out because some of the stories I probably don't want everyone to know about. But I think yeah. some of the, some of the maddest things. They're a hotbed of activity, aren't they? You know, events. We put on some really great events at Tate, and so I've been hugely lucky to be involved in. In the sense that we, we particularly take modern, got a couple of event spaces there with really kind of you know massive scale to them. So we've done things like you know we've done two Bond premieres there. So we've got in you know old Bond cars and put them on the ramp there, uh, and. Uh, I remember one when, uh, again, I was very involved in the wine and uh, Bollinger have always supported those those events quite heavily because of the Bollinger Association uh, with Bond and the agents for that business called Mensendorf, who we always bought lots of uh, wine off. Uh, and I remember again at one of those events, and I can't remember, someone very high up in Bollinger was obviously there. And we had to pour everything from Magnums. And there must have been a thousand people there. Gosh. And actually 
pouring champagne from a magnum if you're not a kind of had much i mean it's it's not actually that easy and so try to find like sort of 30 or 40 people who can go around and pour magnums of bollinger <laughs> we did this sort of training and uh, anyway i remember being given a really hard time halfway through the night by this dignitary from bollinger that people weren't pouring their bollinger properly uh and i was like you know by, by which time it was midnight and frankly no one really cared because they were all they were all having a really good time it did <laughs> but yeah so i just think you know the opportunity to be involved you know, our industry just, you get involved in these kind of, you know, these really fun different things, you know, there's running a business, which I do, but, you know, we've got an event here tomorrow night um, for the opening of the Sergeant exhibition, some really interesting people coming to that and I'll be at that. And so you still get these opportunities to do all these very different things. And I'm still kind of vaguely involved in the wine. And so it's, it's a great supporter of Tate. So, you know, I'm working with him on the wine list for the night. And so, yeah, it's just the diversity of it, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose you, you also have to have a, a situation whereby, the people who are putting on the program for the, the the gallery museum itself, you've got to have a good relationship as well, because I guess the, your work supports the program, uh, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all elements of the book. Obviously, there's the, the publishing side, which are closely linked to all the curators who are putting on the shows, because because you know there is the direct relationship in the sense that many of those curators are writing the essays and the, and the introductions to those catalogues. But then feeds right through into the product that the teams within the shop are putting together um because they're working with both the curators and and the artists estates uh to get you know if we're working to have images on those and and indeed even the, the food and the drink as well i mean you know lots of people when particularly when they were having an event on there's a very direct link they're very keen to have the theme of the show represented in the event or the food or the drink or the styling or whatever it is and actually a lot of the curators are really keen and really love getting involved in that and it's i think it's, it's one of the bits that my team kind of in, in, enjoy the most when you get a really kind of engaged curator and then you find out that this particular artist has i don't know loved coffee or ate in this restaurant in paris or did this and that and then suddenly you've got all this kind of sort of rich stuff that you can kind of uh, you, you can play off in, in various different areas yeah, that's, I can imagine that that's when it becomes very, very interesting. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's it, it, it's it's interesting and fun as well because it's kind of like, you know, some, you get to that point, you actually realise, again, of course, we our industry is a creative industry. But actually, yeah, that that creativity of the menu and the event or whatever, and then the, the creativity of, of, of curating and putting a show together, it actually, you know, they're, they're, of course, they're different things, but actually they're not that far they're not that far apart and the, and the two worlds do cross over far more than you think so yeah absolutely but i think it also highlights just what an amazing skill set hospitality gives you mm. to you know almost tackle like anything that comes yep. your way somebody comes to you with a bizarre request the initial <laughs> response is well maybe the initial response is oh my god but you know <laughs> then there's the creative part of the brain that kicks in and goes wow what if we could what if we could do yep. this yeah no and I, I, I'd agree, and I think that's again really, really evident from an from an from an event perspective. You know, you get these extraordinary events happen where it's a where it's a five or a six day build to put together some some whether it's a fashion show. We always do quite a lot in Fashion Week, or just you know, and everyone else will know is listening to this. Those just those slightly, as you say, crazy requests when someone comes along and goes, "Can we do this?" And you, your initial response, and, and of course our initial response in hospitality is never to say no, but your brain is saying no. There's no way. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then you go, let me go and think about that. Uh, and then, yeah, then you come back with a plan. It's, it's, it's good. Yeah. Well, and how many amazing things have happened over the years in all of the venues around the world because yeah. that has happened. Yeah. Um, and that's a coming together of worlds as well, isn't it? That, that, you know, sometimes it takes people who don't know what you do for a living to shock your brain into action. Yeah, yeah. 
No, that's 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 that's, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Shock the brain into action. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, well, what's next for for Tate then? What what's what does the future hold? Well, we, you know, I think we're at a really interesting point within Tate at the moment. You know, if if, if you know, like many uh, institutions at the moment, we're not, not we're going through a huge amount of change. But you know, post COVID, the world within arts institutions is very different from many elements in terms of who's visiting us. Uh, our funding models are, you know, difficult at the moment. So, I think if, if anything, at the moment, our our role as in Tate Enterprises is is more important than it's ever been within within the Tate family. Um, so, you know, we are actively looking at other areas. We can make some more money, so we can support Tate. So, there's there's always that element of it. We've got a couple of really interesting projects coming up. It's always funny at Tate because we. We have a habit of just building things at Tate. And every time we finish building something at Tate or renovating a gallery, everyone goes, that's it. We're never going to do another capital project, as we call it. <laughs> uh, and we actually have two going on at the moment. So Tate Liverpool uh, is shut for a big uh, redevelopment, opening again, hopefully kind of late next year or early the year after. Um, so that's really exciting because Tate Liverpool broadly remained fairly untouched since it opened in the, in the 80s. And it would, so we're putting in a whole new cafe there and a whole new retail offer uh, and really looking to upscale our events business there. Previously, we had quite limited spaces we could do events. So that's a really exciting project because it's essentially a whole kind of remodeling of the commercial offer um, at Tate Liverpool. And then on a smaller scale, there's a, a really beautiful and rather wonderful building down in Tate's and Eyes, which used to be Barbara Hepworth's main studio. We currently run the Barbara Hepworth Sculpture Garden, which is um, one of her smaller studios, and then an outdoor garden, which has got a lot of her works in it. Just across the street is this old essentially working warehouse where she did some of her really large pieces in which has been pretty much derelict since i think the 90s when tate tate got it uh and so again we're going through this big multi-million pound development of that space which will um open in a couple of years time and putting a small little cafe and a retail offer in there but again it'll be quite a fun um event space and, and again just working so i mean that's you know fantastic working with both capital project teams and architects to deliver both of those and then, and then I'm sure Tate will go, we're never going to build anything ever again. And then they'll start again. Yeah. And yeah. There's always something new to do here. Build a new gallery from scratch in the middle of uh, nowhere or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah, I think so. You know, there's 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 always that. You know, that that is again. I've been hugely lucky here. There's always been this this continually evolving landscape um, at Tate, both in terms of growth in the kind of bluntest terms, in terms of income growth, but actually just you know the changing and the evolving and the morphing of the offer. I think it's although I've been here a long time, you need to particularly with your physical spaces, cafes, restaurants, shops, you need to be continually moving them forward and changing them. Otherwise you suddenly realise that what you did ten years ago is not relevant to what you're doing today. So yeah. Um, I think that innovation is very important. Yeah. I mean I know that you'll have you know in in principle at least you you've got a, a, a captive audience to some extent when they're they're in there anyway. But nevertheless yeah. the competition out there on you know, probably just around the corner is high, right? So you, you've got to be on it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, again, it's, 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 you know, our kind of key things that we track are our conversion rates. So how many people come into the gallery and how many of those then come and spend money with us. And it, and it, and it varies greatly between each gallery and take modern as the lowest primarily for that, exactly that reason, because there is a not, you know, there's an extraordinary amount of competition. You come out of either one of the tubes or the areas that you want to get to take modern and you're going to pass five or six well-known brands that everyone knows. So, we need to really make sure we're on it um, because actually in many cases people i know in some senses they come to us you know they walk into a gallery and they actually come with a negative view of what they think you know institution or museum catering is going to be um and it's our job to actually you know change that view quickly so they come and spend some money with us right 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what a fascinating job you have by from the outside looking in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there are days where you want to tear your hair out as well, but uh, that's the same of any job around Absolutely. the world. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, just to kind of finish on then, I mean, you, you've, you know, you've had a, a cracking career so far yeah what advice would you give to anybody listening to this as to why they should come into hospitality and have a career here well if i don't know i would hope that there is and, and, and in fact i know i hope that i know that there is still the opportunity to take the kind of career path that i have taken within the industry in the sense that you can come into this industry uh you can move through it i think really quite quickly if if you, if you work hard and you have the right attitude um i think it although as we talked a little bit about at the beginning, you know, I think our industry is getting a little bit better. It's getting better at providing providing structure, but in some senses, it's all still very unstructured. Which, if you are prepared to go for it, it means you can move incredibly quickly through the industry. There's a lot of opportunity out there. Yeah. Um, our, our industry is, you know, still short staffed, and so it is crying out for good people. So that, as I said, a lot of opportunity there. And I say, if you like that diversity, I mean, you know, people, a lot of friends of mine have what I call much more desk-based nine-to-five jobs, and, and they all look at envy of what I do because um, not only am I running an interesting business, but, I mean, you know, we're sat here, I sit at this desk talking to you, but I don't sit at the desk all day. I still am wandering around our cafes, restaurants and shops and having meetings and having lunch with someone and going to a t- tasting. They're just, you know, my day is just is just brilliant compared to what I think of some other people doing. Yeah, well, the old uh, cliche of no two days the same. No, it, it, it really isn't. And I think it's, you know, I also think... It, at the moment, the industry is, you know, it's not without its problems at the moment, but because of the kind of changes, I think, like, you know, the, the, what we're seeing structurally within the industry, everything costs more. We, we need to do things in a different way, I think, as an industry than we have done traditionally. And again, I just think that change will bring a lot of opportunity for, for anyone young wanting to come into that industry. Now, it's going to be a hugely exciting time. You're not, you're not going to be working with systems that have been sat there for 15, 20 years. You're, you're going to be given the opportunity to create something new. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think in the moment that we're, we're in, where the industry probably has never had so many individual challenges that are all just coming together. Yeah. Actually, in these moments, that's when your proper innovation is is brought into the, the, the place, isn't it? I couldn't agree more. There'll be, it's exactly that. Even if you're working for a larger company, I think the opportunity to innovate will be there that it probably wouldn't have been 10 years ago because mm. people don't want to try new things when the old, when, when the, how they're doing is kind of doing okay or, or average or working as long as you're making the money it's fine whereas now just just there, there will be change and there's as you say lots of lots of opportunity to influence that for anyone coming into the industry yeah people hate change don't they really yes. um, well, I, some people do some people don't and again I think going back to the attitude of our, of our industry it's that kind of can-do thing I think as an industry it's ingrained you know change is ingrained in us far more than it is in some other industries we're just we're we're good at it you know someone rings you up and says can we have this event next week this is what needs to happen it, it happens <laughs> yeah and then you initially your brain goes no but yes yeah, yeah exactly yeah, exactly. yeah brilliant um Thank you so much, Hamish. I uh, much oh, you. appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your, your story so far. Yeah. Lots, lots to do yet by the sounds of it. Um, Absolutely. And uh, yeah, wish you wish you guys all the best with the, the, the next chapter of your journey. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. Take care. Take care. Cheers. And there we have it. It was great to get some time with Hamish to get some insight into everything that goes on under the Tate Enterprises banner. What a wonderful business they have. My chat with Hamish is a great way to end Season 5, so I'm off now for a podcasting breather for a couple of months, but I'll be back in the summer with more amazing stories from the world of hospitality. So until then, thank you all so much for listening.